Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, the Lord speaks to us through Genesis 50, 20 to 26, and Exodus 1 to 1, 13. Génesis 50, 22, 26 y Éxodo 1, del 1 al 13. José y la familia de su padre permanecieron en Egipto. Alcanzó la edad de 110 años y llegó a ver nacer a los hijos de Efraín hasta la tercera generación. Además, cuando nacieron los hijos de Maquir, hijo de Manasés, él los recibió sobre sus rodillas. Tiempo después, José les dijo a sus hermanos, yo estoy a punto de morir. Pero sin duda Dios vendrá a ayudarlos y los llevará de este país a la tierra que prometió Abraham, Isaac y Jacob. Entonces José hizo que sus hijos le presentaran juramento. Les dijo, sin duda Dios vendrá a ayudarlos. Cuando esto ocurra, ustedes deberán llevarse de aquí mis huesos. José murió en Egipto a los 110 años de edad. Una vez que lo embalsamaron, lo pusieron en un ataúd. Estos son los nombres de los hijos de Israel que acompañados de sus familias llegaron con Jacob a Egipto. Rubén, Simeón, Leví, Judá, Isaacar, Sabulón, Benjamín, Dan, Neftalí, Gad y Aser. En total, los descendientes de Jacob eran 70. José ya estaba en Egipto. Murieron José y sus hermanos y toda aquella generación. Sin embargo, los israelitas tuvieron muchos hijos y a tal grado se multiplicaron que fueron haciéndose más y más poderosos. El país se fue llenando de ellos. Pero llegó al poder en Egipto otro rey que no había conocido a José y le dijo a su pueblo, cuidado con los israelitas que ya son más fuertes y numerosos que nosotros. Vamos a tener que manejarlos con mucha astucia. De lo contrario, Seguirán aumentando y si estalla una guerra, se unirán a nuestros enemigos, como comba nos combatirán y se irán del país. Fue así como los egipcios se pusieron capataces para que oprimieran a los israelitas. Les impusieron trabajos forzados, tales como los de edificar para el faraón las ciudades de almacenaje Pitón y Ramasés. Ramsés, pero cuando, cuanto más los oprimían, más se multiplicaban y se extendían, de modo que los egipcios llegaron a tenerles miedo. Por eso les imponían trabajos más pesados y los trataban con crueldad. This is the word of the Lord. Gracias a Dios. So, for those of you that have been with us for the last 20 weeks, uh, today is our final week of our series in the beginning. Uh, if you've been with us, we have been looking at the book of Genesis over the last 20 weeks or so, uh, looking at the book uh, in relation to it uh, really being our uh, origin story. If you're a Christian, we've seen that throughout Genesis, uh, so much of what the Christian faith is, foundationally, is explained and expounded on here in uh, the book of Genesis. Uh, there is this central figure 
that has constantly been before us as we've processed uh, the various, uh, the, the overall narrative and the various narratives within the book of Genesis, that central figure, uh, of course, being Jesus. Since Genesis 3, uh, we have been told of one who is going to come to crush the serpent's head. We have been told of the one uh, to whom all the different aspects of this story uh, are pointing, Jesus being that central figure. Jesus has been the, the alpha, the beginning of the story. He's been the omega, the end of the story. He's the primary character, not only of uh, Genesis, but ultimately of the entire arc of Scripture. We've seen this over and over again. But in this final week, I want to consider one of the other central themes of uh, Genesis, but also of the entire Bible, which is the establishment of God's people. If Jesus and the salvific work he accomplishes is the central theme of the Bible, the people of God are the ones for whom that salvific work has been accomplished. And now over the, the last 15 weeks or so, we've been looking at the backstory of uh, God establishing a new nation, a nation that would bless the world. Uh, that nation was not just the end of his promise, uh, but rather that nation, as we're going to see today, uh, was a foretaste of a nation that would come, a nation into which all peoples of the earth would be welcomed and where all peoples of the earth would be blessed. And so in this final week, as we wrap up the book of Genesis, I want to take a look at the, the climax of the story that we have been immersed in, the establishment of a new nation, and also see how the establishment of that nation and how God has established it actually has a lot to say to us today. So let's look at two things. We're going to mix it up. We're going to get crazy today. Two points. Number one, we're going to look at God's establishment of a new nation and then God's establishment of a holy nation. Okay, let's look at those two things. God's establishment of a new nation. Uh, first, uh, God's people, um, known as Israel, has been the focal point of so much of the series. If you recall, God called Abraham to go into this unknown land, leaving all that he had known behind. But in calling him to this land, he says to Abraham, this is back in Genesis 12, he says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed through you. And then later on in Genesis 15, God says to him uh, to establish that nation, he says, look up to the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. This is the covenant that God makes with Abraham, that he would establish him as a nation and that his offspring would bless the world. And ever since that point, we have seen how generation after generation, there has been great concern to ensure that the line and the blessing of Abraham continue so that this great nation could eventually be established. And here we are at the end of Genesis, finally seeing the establishment of this nation, or at least the development of what would become the nation. If you remember last week, we looked at how Jacob, who's also called Israel, ended up in Egypt with his family. The family had uh, come to Egypt seeking assistance during a great famine. But unknown to the sons of, well, unknown to Jacob and also his sons, uh, they were seeking assistance from their younger brother, Joseph, uh, who they had sold into enslavement, but now had come to great power. He was essentially the prime minister of Egypt. Uh, they were, he was the one that they had come now to see. 
But because God was powerfully at work in Joseph, uh, what we saw last week was that Joseph extended mercy. He extended forgiveness to his brothers, the ones who had uh, so unjustly uh, sold him off. And as a result of this uh, extension of forgiveness, this reconciliation, the whole family now comes together, including Jacob, and they settle in the land of Egypt. Now, in this final chapter of Genesis, what we're seeing is uh, Jacob on his deathbed. Jacob is about to die. Uh, and he gives, uh, as a result, a special blessing to each of his sons and grandsons, particularly the ones who would represent the 12 tribes of Israel. We heard those, those names listed. Each of those names uh, of these sons represented one of the 12 tribes of this coming nation. The great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren of Abraham are beginning to establish this nation. And you would, you would think, after all that we've been through, the story would be complete. The thing that God had promised was to establish a nation. Here we have it. The nation's being established. But then look at what we see in Exodus 1, right? We've got to jump out of our, uh, our Genesis narrative and take a look at now what happens as this nation begins to develop further. In Exodus 1, starting in verse 7, let me reread that for us. Uh, 7 to verse 12. This is what happened as a result. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful in Egypt, that is. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have, been, uh, have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them and forced, with forced labor. And they built uh, Pitham and Ramses as stones of cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Interesting. This developing people, this rising nation, this prospering line of Abraham and Israel has now become an enemy of the most powerful nation on earth at the time due to God's blessing them and them multiplying. All right, this is the beginning. We just read the beginning of what will become hundreds of years of oppression and captivity and brutal enslavement. I mean, after all that it took to get them to this point of being their own nation, this thriving people, and in particular, a nation that was supposed to bless the world, and now they are once again stifled and oppressed. And as I look at that story, and it, honestly, it really did not strike me. You would think this would have struck me previously. It really did not strike me how jarring that actually is. After all that we've gone through to get them to this point, why? Why does God now allow them to be stifled and oppressed in this way? Why is this the way that God establishes the people that he promised to establish? Why does he, you know, if we go back in history, why does he establish, or why does he uh, use terrible people in the line of Abraham, including, frankly, Abraham himself? Why did he even start there? Why does he then allow, if you know, the, of course, over these, over these stories, why does, he, why does he allow broken families and broken individuals to wreak havoc on other people's lives? Why does he work through all the injustice, all the violence, all the oppression that we've seen thus far? Why has he done all of that only now to bring this family to the point of subjugation? 
and not even just the family, but this now this ethnic nationwide oppression in Egypt that only now starts this whole new saga, a saga that will be awful in its history, if you know the rest of the Old Testament. It's going to take the entire Old Testament now to, to narrate all that's going to happen. I, why? Why go through all of that to establish his people? Now, the easy answer to that question uh, is a little bit of a cop-out, because the easiest answer is just to say, I don't know. I have no idea why God has decided to make this such a complicated process in establishing this nation. But as we consider all the facets of the story, here is what we do know. There's a lot we don't. Here's what we do know. First, what we have seen is that time and time again, God is always interested in working through, lifting up, empowering those that the world views as less than weak and unworthy. Right? We've seen that over and over again. Think about what we've seen so far. Right? To get Israel to this point, God has confronted cultural notions of primogeniture, which is the, the privileging of the firstborn. I mean, we saw that when he chooses Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau. What we've seen is God confront the cultural no notions of, of youth and beauty as essential to value. Right? We know that because he chooses the elderly Sarah over the fertile and younger Hagar. He chooses the unloved and the unattractive Leah over the beautiful and loved Rachel. He upends assumptions that power or influence is the way to blessing by redeeming Judah, if you remember that story, only after Judah was humble and confessed and repented of his injustice. He exalts, God exalts, an abused and forgotten widow named Tamar to make her the mother of the kingly line of Israel. He upends assumptions about tragic and even wicked acts against, uh, again, uh, to ensure that what we see is not always what is actually taking place. Now, if you remember, Joseph, he endured a lot, and yet God saw something more than just the burdens and the cares and the injustices that Joseph was experiencing. Joseph endured much only for God to then bring him to, just, uh, to greatness. God has upended assumptions over and over again that unrighteousness will lead to success. But he's also showed us that righteousness doesn't always guarantee success, something else we might assume. If you remember Potiphar, uh, Potiphar's wife and Joseph, Joseph, Joseph's life is ruined as he knew it, completely upended because he was righteous. Over and over again, we see God upending what we expect to occur. The other thing that we've seen over and over again is that every time family leaders throughout Genesis think that they are being wise, they end up caring more about their own glory instead of trusting God, and as a result, they make a mess. We've seen over and over again, as a result of selfishness, their willingness to exploit and abuse and reject others. And it is no coincidence that when God looks upon those in Genesis, he sees Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Rachel and Leah and Tamar and Joseph, all of whom ended up hurt because of someone else's selfishness. But through it all, time and time again, the establishment of Israel upends our assumptions about who is deserving of exaltation, blessing, redemption, and success. It has been a through line throughout the book. And by doing so, 
God shows us just how flawed our natural way of thinking tends to be. Right? It was that way for them. They assumed certain things about how the world should be, and God said, no, you're wrong. We, too, similarly, have that same kind of flawed natural thinking. I mean, through them, if we have eyes to see, we can actually see ourselves in them far more than we probably want to assume. We are much like the people of Genesis. We make the same kind of assumptions about what is valuable, about who should be privileged and prioritized, and the lengths to which we might be justified to pursue ourselves' betterment over the betterment of others. Similar to them, so often we do not care about what God cares about, we do not love what God loves, and in this way, often like them, we try to make ourselves gods, unconcerned with what God finds valuable, what he privileges, what he prioritizes, what he cares about. I mean, as an example, you cannot read the Bible and you cannot read Genesis without seeing that God's heart is inclined toward those who are poor, not the rich, the weak, the widow and the orphan, the stranger and the immigrant, not the powerful. Over and over again, you're going to see God's heart inclined toward them. You're going to see God's heart inclined toward the righteous and the just, not the wicked and the self-serving. And as a result, we cannot read the Bible rightly and end up, without ending up assessing our own modern assumptions, if we have eyes to see, to see how often we too are misaligned with the heart of God. And I mean that, as we've said over and over again, um, we have a lot of cultural difference, uh, distance rather, between the book of Genesis and today. But in our modern era, again, we have so much in common with them. I mean, just consider some of the categories that we've looked at of how God cares for the poor, what God thinks about uh, our, natural assum- our, our natural assumptions about what is beautiful, about sex, about arrogance, all these different themes that we've seen over and over again. I mean, think about the poor today. I mean... We too privilege and prioritize the rich over the poor. We do it all the time. And we're perfectly happy with that being the state of things. I mean, why is it, how is it, that the wealth of the the top 1% in the U.S. is 15 times that of the bottom 50% combined? How does that happen? How is it in a nation so full of abundance that children still daily, regularly go to bed hungry? How is it that in a society with mind-boggling advances in healthcare, why is it that it's the wealthy or those with the best jobs that get the best medical attention? Well, it's because collectively we value wealth and its pursuits over the commitment to the poor. I mean, just capitalism for all its benefits, and this isn't a knock on capitalism, but for all its benefits and successes by its nature, it cares only about the ROI about a return and investment. And the poor contribute nothing to your bottom line. In fact, the poor undermine the quality of that bottom line. And so their care is ultimately just for those that are big hearted. It's not something we are obligated to. It's a nice gesture if we care about the poor. And instead, we lionize the wealthy and we view their success as the blessing of the American dream when in reality, Before God, their wealth and success could very well be a curse from God. Think about our understandings of of beauty. I mean, we exalt those deemed beautiful, our cultural understandings of beautiful, and we don't value those not deemed 
beautiful by our cultural standards. I mean, we are obsessed with people that we've deemed worthy of praise due to their attractiveness. I mean, celebrity obsessions and dating reality shows and the ubiquity of plastic surgeries and the assumptions that all we need to do is just look a certain way and we will be attractive and then as a result be accepted or maybe even loved. I mean, we have filters on our phone that will transform our appearance to curate a more attractive version of ourselves because we've bought into the idea that we must change our appearance to be accepted and loved. I mean, we've literally rewired our brains to prefer fake and accepted instead of flawed and honest. And all of this reveals deep superficialities in us that are fundamentally no different than all the superficialities of beauty that we've seen throughout the book of Genesis. I mean, we've looked at this over and over again, but consider our modern notions and understandings of sex and sexual uh, fulfillment. I mean, pursuits of sex and fulfillment are so often rooted in an assumption that I deserve the fulfillment the way I want it and when I want it. And we bristle at stories in Genesis of exploitation or the notion of just using people for sexual gratification. But my goodness, when we read those stories, what hypocrisy so often we have when we consider modern day understandings of sex as well. Sexual exploitation is so normalized and ubiquitous in modern day. I mean, the ubiquity of, of pornography and the indifference of sex trafficking that happens through it and the pervasiveness of hookup culture, all of these things are happy to treat people as objects. And we've normalized exploitation. And for what it's worth, a person's willingness to be exploited changes nothing about God's disdain for that exploitation. Right? Tamar's willingness to sell herself does not justify Judah's willingness to exploit her. Every time, we care nothing about the wholeness of a person, whether that's through a sexual relationship or an employment relationship. Whenever we don't care about that person as a whole, only what we can extract from them, we are exploiting them. And it, in the end, is no different than the exploitation that we've seen over and over in this book. You know, we don't exalt the lowly and the humble. We love the arrogant and the proud. I think one of the, the most um, uh, obvious examples of this is when we look at those who tend to shape most how we view the world. You know, when we look at cable news anchors or podcasters or political pundits, the most popular amongst them, the most popular political pundits or commentators uh, that we listen to, many of us listen to, they are wildly arrogant and self-serving, but we like them because they agree with us. On Twitter, those who get the most attention tend to be the ones who use the most extreme language, aggressive attitudes, because we view that as some kind of boldness or strength. Again, the weak and the humble, the meek do not get nearly the same retweets. The bottom line is, here's the point. You and I are not nearly as enlightened or righteous as we think we are. You and I are the people of Genesis who need constant reminders that our instincts about what is right and wrong, what is honorable and just, what is righteous and most reflective of who God is, we are in constant need of reminders. And sometimes we need really jarring reminders to snap us out of believing that our instincts are right. God rejects our flawed understandings of how things ought to be. And the establishment of Israel 
is God's way of presenting to the world how things ought to be. When we look at the story through the lens of what God is attempting to accomplish, he is weeding out all of these broken, sinful assumptions that we think to be the proper way to approach it. And that, my friends, has actually been, that God working in this way has actually been something that has transformed so much of the world as we know it. Uh, one of the things, uh, just a couple of years ago, um, author Tom Holland, not the actor, he's a historian, uh, who wrote a book called Dominion, big fat book. Uh, and in the book, uh, Holland, who's not a Christian, he shows how first Judaism and then Christianity and the entire ethic of Christianity completely transformed the world. And that actually there's been nothing even remotely close to the ethic that's embodied and embedded within uh, the Bible. And there's so much of that book that's uh, worth noting. Um, but what he essentially tries to do is he tries to show how many of the modern ideals that we aspire to are deeply rooted in the Bible and they come from nowhere else. And even the things ac ac um, across history, th various things that have taken place have taken place because of the Bible. Just as an example, he shows how uh, the Enlightenment and its very high view of human capacity doesn't exist apart from the Bible's high view of humanity. It's what drove the Enlightenment. Uh, he looks at how the uh, pursuit of scientific inquiry does not exist except for the, the biblical understanding of the creation and the order within creation. Uh, he shows how even, you know, communistic uh, Marxist ideology that does tend to have an emphasis toward the poor and the oppressed does not exist without the Bible's emphasis on the same. Ironically, of course, the com communistic uh, Marxist ideology would jettison and reject Christian theology, and yet the very thing that they claim to be so important to them, the poor and the oppressed, is a Christian idea. He argues how the, the, the Beatles, the, the famous mantra of the Beatles, um, all we need is love, doesn't actually exist without the Bible. That concept is a biblical idea. The civil rights movement, he shows, was rooted, of course, in the assertion that we are all equal. He argues that the, the Me Too movement of recent years and its emphasis on men controlling their sexual urges and the dignity and autonomy of everyone, especially women, that idea comes from the Bible. You're not going to find that idea in antiquity anywhere else. The Bible gave us that ethic. He even talks about how uh, atheistic humanism the whole idea of humanism is rooted in the Bible. He says this about humanism, and this is just for free. I thought this was fascinating. He says, humanism derives ultimately from the claims in the Bible that humans are made in the image of God, that his son died equally for everyone, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. And then he goes on to say that human beings have rights, that they are born equal, that they are owed sustenance and shelter, and refuge from persecution. These were never self-evident truths. Again, he's not a Christian. He's a historian that recognizes you do not get the things that we hold as ideals from anywhere else but first Judaism that first introduces this ethic and then subsequently Christianity. And that begins to upend so much of the world's understanding of how things ought to be. And as a side note, I find this uh, a particularly um, significant irony that many today who believe in equality, 
or justice or the dignity of all people and yet reject the Christian faith, do not understand what they are rejecting. You do not get those ideas anywhere else but the Bible. And so often it's because we want the benefits of a Christian God without acknowledging him as such. Your instincts about what is right, good, and true are deeply shaped by him. But this is how the God of the Bible works. What's, what's the point of everything that I just said? This is how the God of the Bible works. He takes the things that we naturally assume to be true, and he shows us something different by upending our assumptions of what we ought to be. That selfishness, that desire for self-gratification, that desire to love self more than others. I mean, that's the natural way of things. It's the Christian ethic. It's the God of the Bible who upends those notions. And what we're seeing here in the establishment of God's people is him ensuring that when that people is established, they will be a people who proclaim and present to the world something different than what everyone else assumes to be good, right, and true. God promised that he would make Abraham into a great nation and that all the peoples of the world would be blessed. And we've seen God faithfully moving them on that journey. But to go back to where we started, how is it now that these people end up enslaved in Egypt? How are they going to now bless the world? Again, I don't have all the answers for why God chose to bring them into enslavement, but what I do know is that God looks upon the oppressed. God looks upon those who are enslaved. God's heart is inclined toward them, toward them and it's through those people, that God will bless the world. And the way that we see God bless the world through them is what we begin to see unfold as the rest of Scripture and the narrative of Scripture uh, begins uh, to, un to unfold. And then, of course, into what we call the New Testament, where this nation of Israel, we see this nation being a precursor of a nation that would come through them, a nation that would eventually one day be called a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That was God's ultimate goal. And so let's finally look at God's establishment of a holy nation. I started by saying uh, that um, throughout Genesis, you know, Genesis is driving us, of course, not just toward the establishment of Israel as a nation, but it's also pointing us to the one uh, that would come through them that would be the fullness of, uh, fulfill the fullness of God's promise uh, and blessing. But how is it that Jesus, the promised one, how is it that Jesus would be the one to establish a blessing for all peoples, including us today? Well, he is this blessing because, again, Israel was a foretaste, an archetype, a precursor of a nation that Jesus would come to establish. In 1 uh, Peter 2, the Apostle Peter makes a fascinating arguments about the nation that Christ came to establish. Uh, it's important to note that Peter is writing uh, to people in Asia Minor, and it would have been a group of people uh, who would have been both Jew and Gentile. And this is what he says to this mixed group of people. He says in verse 9 that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Let me pause there for a second. Each one of those titles is directly connected to how God spoke of Israel 
throughout the Old Testament. Let me just show you what I mean. In Exodus 19, we also see this in Isaiah 43. God refers to them who he takes out of Egypt in so many of these terms. Those he led out of enslavement, here's what he says about them. In Exodus 19, he says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is God speaking to Israel in Exodus 19. Fast forward again to First Peter 2. He says this about this mixed group of people that are not just Jewish. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right, take a look at that for a second. Who is the one who has called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light? Of course, it's Jesus. Right? Jesus establishes a new nation of all those who trusted him, a people who will declare his praises, a people who have received mercy, a people who, like Israel, are led out of slavery and enslavement to sin. Jesus calls them out of that darkness and into his light. And as the one who establishes that people, it's important to see that Jesus embodies all that God prioritizes and privileges. He's the only one who truly shows us the character and the nature of God in the way that he lives. Jesus is the one who upends our assumptions of how things ought to be. I mean, think about who Jesus was. Jesus was the one who had all power and all riches, but he comes not with power and strength, but he comes in poverty and weakness. Jesus, he, he comes with words of rebuke for the arrogant and the self-serving and the proud, but then he lifts the head of the poor and the widow, the forgotten, the unseen, the marginalized, and the unloved. Jesus never exploits another for his own selfish fulfillment, but instead lays down his life to accomplish the wholeness of those whom he loves. Jesus is the ultimate upending of our natural assumptions of how things ought to be. And like God calling Israel, God welcomes those who recognize their need for him, those who willingly lay down their assumptions of how things ought to be and instead come to him with humility, to trust in this Savior, those whose, whose hearts are inclined toward the poor because they themselves recognize their own poverty before God. Not those who attempt to create some kind of curated filter, so to speak, when they come before God, but those that come honestly, without a mask, acknowledging their flaws and their failures before him. Those who seek the good of others, not their own selfish pursuits. Those who recognize their need for a savior because they cannot consistently live in the way that God calls them to live. Those who recognize that kind of failure and come to God knowing that they need the cross of Christ. For it's on the cross of Christ that all of that inability that we have to live in the ways that honor God, Jesus on the cross bears that burden and then rises again in glorious power and becomes the true and ultimate fulfillment of the promises that God has been promising since Genesis. 
that the world would be blessed through that resurrection power because he is the one who crushes that serpent's head. A crushing that was foretold many years ago and he doesn't just do it for the people in Israel, he does it for all those who trust in Jesus. And so the question is, are you part of this new nation, this holy nation established by Jesus, established by, uh, by the one who has given his all, laid down his life for our good as we trust in him? Have you trusted him as the other one who's established that nation? And as a result, are we allowing what Jesus has done on our behalf to deeply impact us that we might be a people who are then able to live in this world as that holy nation reflecting to the world who God is, what he desires, the character and nature of the one who has made us a people when we were not a people. My encouragement would be to trust in him in those ways. And may he use us for his glory in this world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for the ways that you have for millennia been pointing us to the work of Jesus. We thank you that so much of what we've looked at over these uh, past months have been reminders that at our core, in our nature, our earthly broken nature, we are no different than the people of Genesis. That we do not love what you love, we do not care what you care about, but it's only when we see you for who you are, when we embrace who you are and what you desire, that we begin to see real, meaningful, radical change not only happen in us, but also in the world around us. And so, Lord, I pray first and foremost that you would help us all to trust in you in ways that reflect the goodness and the character of what you've accomplished, that we would trust in the work of our Savior, the one who establishes this new nation. And then as a result, make us a people who reflect your character in this world. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc. 